0: Oh our God, how much we need you. While trials and troubles and struggles and challenges, and pain and hardship surround us, encompass us, wait before us, lie in wait to pounce upon us. How crucial it is for us to know that you are our defender, Lord. That you are a great God and savior, that you you strengthen us and help us. That you will never leave us or forsake us, or abandon us. Our Father, we thank you. And Lord, I pray that that you would be pleased through the proclamation of your word to uh, strengthen and encourage our hearts about these things. As the days grow around us distressing, as stress imposes itself upon us, As challenges within families and struggles at workplaces, economic frustrations and health crisis, Father, land in our lives, we need to know that our God is our defender. Our God will help us. Our God will give us strength that when you say, take heart to us, we can. So, our Father, I pray that you would give us a strong word today. Help us in time of need i pray for jesus sake amen it seems to me that one of the big challenges for the christian walk is to try and reconcile an understanding of a sovereign all-powerful god who can change anything can do anything that he desires anything that he wills over against all of the pain and struggles and challenges and persecutions and frustrations in our lives, the stresses, the distresses? Why doesn't He just rescue us right away? And, and if He's all-powerful and, and, and he's, His will is sovereign and all of that, why in, are we just passive pawns to what God is doing? I, I think there's a sort of uneasy relationship that Christians have with the theology of the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the all-knowing of God. It causes us struggle, especially as tragedies pile upon tragedies, pain upon pain, pressures us, we're not overly comfortable with these kinds of things, we wonder to ourselves, you know, Why doesn't God just make every Christian event the most spectacular and successful event that ever occurred? Why doesn't God just fill up every church to this bursting at the seams? Why doesn't God enable every call that goes out of the gospel to result in the conversion of every lost heart? Philip Yancey, in his most recent book, What Good is God? Talks about the pain and suffering that he has encountered just as he goes about the countryside and around the world and does book signings and talks to people and they tell him how his books have helped them or discouraged them more or whatever. You know, he he writes in the early part of his book, which, by the way, I haven't finished. He writes in the early part of his book, um, some of the, the things that gripped his heart, things that people have said as they've challenged, as they've struggled with, with God and the, and, and, and the trials in their lives. He speaks about um, on a book tour and meeting people as they come by the, the desk that he's signing books. It says, I meet an older man with a lush beard who walks to the microphone with a shuffle and mumbles. God gave me Parkinson's disease. How can I possibly think God listens to what I have to say in prayer? I hear accounts of suicides, birth defects, terminal diseases, and children hit by trucks. A a woman confesses praying in desperation during her 19 years of an abusive marriage. Lord, if someone is killed by a drunk driver, let it be my husband. I meet a woman afflicted with multiple sclerosis, shockingly young, who limps over to tell me she is learning all she can about prayer because the disease is progressing so fast, soon she will be capable of little else. I speak on the topic of grace, and and a woman approaches the book table to tell me she needs to work on forgiveness, don't we all, I say. No, I really need to, she replies, and proceeds to tell me that, that her father murdered her husband. First he, he stole my past by abusing me, now he has stolen my future. Yet she doesn't want her children to grow up hating her, their grandfather, who is serving time in prison. The man behind her waits patiently as we talk, then tells me of his daughter's rape in the parking garage of the Phoenix airport. She decided to keep the child... A daughter, he says. She named her Grace. After a talk on prayer, a teenage girl tells me with a smile that now she has to pray for her sister. Why? Because you said we should pray for our enemies. More seriously, a woman in the same line, an ordained pastor, tells of a dark period after her son died... ...when for 18 months she could not bring herself to pray... She cried out one day, God, I don't want to die like this with all communication cut off. Even so, another six months passed before she could resume praying. And on and on it goes. Same kind of questions that we ask ourselves or that our friends ask us. And so, um, in Daniel chapter 11 and 12 God says to Daniel there will be war now um, Jesus in the New Testament said in this world you will have trouble of course um, doesn't sound like a lot of good news it's not exactly what we came to hear there will be war Which is code for there will be a lot of pain, Daniel. A lot of suffering. A lot of grief. That's not helping, Lord. Maybe all of us should just um, accept the 1970s philosopher George Carlin's approach to life. Life is tough and then you die. Or maybe we shouldn't. I want to share with you this morning that wrapped around the statement that... God gives to Daniel about there will be war. And by the way, he's talking in, in this chapter, Daniel chapter 11, of war upon war upon war. He, he articulates in that chapter um, 400 years of prophecy, of his, historical prophecy about war upon war and grief upon grief and pain upon pain, suffering upon suffering. I'm not going to take the time to go through the momentous amount of historical data that's in Daniel chapter 11 this morning. I'm going to do that tonight with you. So don't miss tonight because it's really an important lesson. But but I want to take what God has stated in in the book of Daniel, in the presentation that he makes to to us, his people, of a sovereign God over all things, a powerful God. And what was the message of hope? What's the message of encouragement? What's the message of strength? What's the message that, that causes us to take heart? In the face of the follies of a fallen world, God's people are not to be afraid. We're to find peace and we're to find strength. There is a great struggle going on And people are are cashing in their faith because of the pain and the suffering and the hurt all around them and in their lives. Yancey notes that um, national polls in the U.S. show a steady rise in the number of people declaring no religion when asked about their religious affiliation. Up from 2.7% of the population in 1957. Now 16% in 2009. More Americans now profess no religion. Than all Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists and Lutherans combined. Their number has nearly doubled since 1990. And in Europe the percentage is far higher which we know. Strangely two-thirds of the respondents who claim no religion still believe that God exists. Some of them judge organized religion as hypocritical or irrelevant, and others simply question what God is good for. During the years when the West resisted godless communism, he writes, religion seemed an important bulwark. Now our most prominent enemies are religious extremists. Little wonder more and more people have doubts about the value ...of religious faith. So what about us? Are we going to cash it all in? Because there's a lot of trouble in our lives? Because there's a lot of pain encompassing our lives right now? Because there's pressure? Because there's stress? Because there's distress? And we know of a sovereign God... ...who we believe is... ...by His claims all-powerful... Here's what I I have needed in my life and what I believe I have found when I listen to God's whole message. Because you know what? The message that there will be war. The message that there will be trouble. The world will be trouble around you. You'll be in trouble. is not the whole message of the Bible. It's not the whole message of God. I want to share with you this morning six thoughts very quickly about what I believe is wrapped around this statement of Daniel. By the way, the history of your people is going to be pretty painful. And the first is this, that as I look at the text and as I understand the nature of pain and struggling and, and the pressure of all of that, for me, there, there must be a word from God. In, in order to hold on, in order to believe that, that it matters that I worship and serve him, there must be a word from God. And, and, and I look here and I read and I, I, I understand that the text says that, that there will be war. And that's, but that's the message a newscaster would give. That's, that's the message a CNN reporter would give. That's just naked information. But, but when I read in the text of Daniel chapter 10 verse 1, I find out that this is a revelation from God. That, that this is a message that is true. I, I find out that, that in, in Daniel chapter 11 verse 2, that, that, that now I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I find out that, that there's a word from God on this. It's not just naked information. It's it's revelation from the heart of God. It's a a message of of God's intentions, of what God is doing, of a purposeful God. It's it's, it's It's a telling of the truth. To a generation increasingly addicted to images and weekly experiences. The final word of God to Daniel in Daniel 11 and 12 is not imagery. It's not some sort of ecstatic experience. It's word. In word, you see, there's a precision. There's not a lot of room for subjectivity. Subjective truth. Daniel, I'm going to tell you the truth. That's what sets... God's people, apart from all of the other peoples of the world and the other faith traditions of the world, God sets out for us truth. I'm going to tell you the truth, Daniel, that this is a message and a word from God. But secondly, I, I not only need a, a, a message or a word from God. I, for me, there must be confidence in God's control. If I'm going to believe in a God who's in control... I. I have to have confidence in God's control. Now, by the way, not just in His control, but but in the kind of control He operates under and demonstrates for us in His Word. It's because sometimes we can get to the place where we may be thinking in our lives, although we wouldn't necessarily want to articulate it, that if God is in control, aren't we really just passive pawns? You know, as Daniel is in rapt attention and god is telling him all the things that are going to happen the king of the south will become strong and one of her family a lion will arise and take her place and attack the forces of the king of north and in those times many will rise against the king of the south and all of that i I need to i I think you need to say to yourself wait a second if if you're actually writing the script god on it maybe i'm just a passive pawn to all of this Maybe I'm just a spectator sitting on the sideline. What difference does it make? What, what what responsibility do I have as a righteous man, or what responsibility do wicked people have? And I realize again in verse twenty-one of chapter ten that God reminds Daniel that He's writing to him and telling of things that are written in the book of truth. Well, what is the truth, Lord? The truth is this, while it may look and seem like you're a passive pawn, Daniel, God's word describes the sovereignty of God in a way that includes the responsibility and act of participation of mankind. Let me give you an example. Philippians chapter 2, listen. Therefore, my dear friends, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Well, let me ask you a question. Who's working? Am I working? Yes. Is God working? Yes. Are you confounded by that? Absolutely. I'm working and God is working out his will and his purpose. How are we cooperating so well? Well, sometimes we aren't. I can't think of a better example in the Word of God than the story of Joseph. Now, the whole idea of a sovereign God, Joseph, a righteous man, serving God unjustly, sold by his brothers into slavery turned over to wicked men thrown ultimately in jail not because he deserved to be there but because of the wickedness and evil of people and the plots that were around his life and how is it that that in all of that as Daniel understood a, or as Joseph understood a powerful and almighty God how is it that that when we come to the near the end of the of the book of Genesis we encounter a Joseph who is not bitter toward God. And able to forgive his rat brothers. And we encounter in the scriptures. One of the most amazing responses of a man of God. When Joseph encounters his brothers and they're fearful because now he knows who they are. And now he's the most powerful man in Egypt. And, and he says to his brothers... Verse 19 of Genesis chapter 50. Don't be afraid. I am, in the pla- am I in the place of God? Now listen to this. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the great mystery of the universe, that that God can hold intention, his divine sovereign control over all things, and the full moral responsibility of human agents to produce a perfect, harmonious symphony of his purposes. And, And yes, man is accountable. As Joseph said, you intended something wicked, and you're accountable for that. But I can forgive you. You know why I can forgive you? Because I know that God is in charge and God is in control. And what you intended to harm me, God intended to use for his glory and to God's great salvation to take place. Joseph's life is not uniquely different than yours. You'll be unjustly treated. You've been unjustly maligned by someone. You, you've been plotted against, and if you haven't, you will be. So how do you prevent becoming bitter toward God, who could intervene on your behalf and say, enough, stop this, and, and turn the, the uh, persecutor into a grease spot, which is what we would like. How can you turn around like, like Joseph did and, and, and forgive them? It's because you realize that the kind of control that God presents is one whereby man is accountable for what he intends and at the same time subject to what God purposes. And that's how God dominates the destructive intentions of evil. That God allows evil to exist and in turn uses it is instrumental in ensuring that we will continue to love him. Now, that seems really odd. But think about this. When is it that your heart most turns to God? Isn't it in the pain? Isn't it in the suffering? Isn't it in the persecuting? Isn't it there? that's That's why God can entrust so few of us with wealth. Because if he entrusted us with wealth our hearts would turn to idolize the things we have instead of worshiping the God he wants us to love. And so he brings things our way and uses them as instruments to prevent us from idolizing the things of this world that we might turn our attention and our love and our dependency full on him. There is no alternative that makes any sense. Without purpose, all is meaningless. Without control, all is irresponsible. Without restrained freedom comes complete randomness. Without divine planning, all is fatalistic. Without a reason, there can be no reward. And without predictable future, there can be no hope. Okay, so we accept there's a sovereign God who is unchangeable in His character and His nature. But, but you know what I need to know? I need to know that, that I can call out to Him. I, I need to know in the face of pain and suffering and struggle and persecution and distress and, and bad news that, that I can call out to Him and that He will hear me. I, I need to know that I can appeal to the throne room of the court of heaven. Otherwise, why bother? That's where um, Daniel was given this amazing backstage pass to the things of God. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Daniel, listen, Gabriel says. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to them. Does it matter that you prayed, Daniel, Listen. And then he's granted a new insight in Daniel chapter eleven verse one in this amazing exchange or interchange between the angel Gabriel and the angel Michael and and Daniel and the teaching of of the of the things that were about to happen and truth and and once again Gabriel gives him an amazing insight. He says, Daniel, do you remember two years ago when you were praying? You were praying in the first year of Darius. You remember that, Daniel? Two years ago, well, well, my, well I I was battling. We were battling against the the king of Persia. We were battling against the things that were going on. And, and, And in the face of your prayer, Michael was sent to help. You remember you were you were laboring on your knees, you were you were crying out to God, oh God, will you ever forgive our sinfulness? Will you ever turn your favor toward us again? Oh God, when will that happen? Do you remember, Daniel? And for hours upon hours and days and weeks, you, you weren't sure if you were heard. God heard. The very first moment, Daniel, that you. Determined to search out God and fall on your knees in humility before him. He heard every word. And I have been sent in response to your words. In some amazing way, our great God has connected prayer to the action of divine response. Because prayer is a part of the purposefulness of a God who operates from intention and not from random. Does it matter that you pray? Yes, a thousand times it matters. And in the midst of life's darkest nights, and at the front end of the worst news, I think Daniel needed to be reassured that it will be worth it all. Don't you need that? As you, as you serve God, as you, as you fight for faith, as you seek to, to honor Him with your life, as you, as you battle the challenges of, 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 of being misunderstood and, and being set aside or persecuted, don't you need to know that it matters that you serve Him? Don't, don't you need to know that there's hope? Daniel, I want you to know something. At the time... At that time, Michael, verse chapter 12, verse 1, the great prince, that great angel who protects your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, listen, everyone whose name is found written in the book, everyone who believed it mattered to be faithful will be delivered. Daniel, there's going to be hundreds of years of distress and pain and and sorrow and mourning. uh, Women who have lost their sons in battle and and families that are broken apart. But I want you to know, Daniel, that there is hope. It's going to matter. It's going to matter that you remain faithful. And that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. It's going to matter. Why all the tough stuff just to get to hope? Seems to me as I've studied a bit of life, what really matters in life becomes more focused in pain. The truth is that hope and joy are only possible because God purposes the final script. Let's be honest. As challenging and struggle, as the struggle is. The only reason we have hope and joy. Is because we hold firmly to our belief. That there's a sovereign God. Who's in charge of all things. And will deliver us. And will grant us a harvest if we don't faint. We don't give up. If we don't give up on God as as the solution. Fifthly, to me, you know, when I think about all of the painfulness, and, and if you read through chapter 11, all it is is people with their schemes and their plots, and one kingdom rising against another kingdom, annexing their land and stealing their wealth. I don't know how you feel about it, but when I think of a sovereign God over all these things and presiding over all of this mischief, for me, there has to be the promise of justice. There has to be justice. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting Contempt. Someday, all the abusers, the exploiters, the murderers will have to pay for their crimes. The crimes against God and against humanity. And I think you know this, that while suffering is often undeserved, it is never unnoticed nor fails to draw a final response even in this time now. God is not unaware of your circumstance. He's not unaware of the pain that you're struggling with. And evil and the whole of hell is arrayed at trying to steal your joy, steal your faith, steal your confidence in God, hope that you'll pack it in, mail it in, Throw the whole thing under the bus. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Romans, said, you you need to know some things. That in all of this stuff, all of this mess, there are some things that the mess can never take away from you. There are some things that the pain can never arrest from your life. There are some things that this mess will never interfere with. All of hell can't prevent you from being made in the likeness of Christ. All of hell can't cause God to be against you. Ever. All of hell can't prevent God from giving to you anything that he desires to give you. All of hell can't cause you to be hauled back into God's court of judgment ever. And be retried. And all of hell... Is never going to be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor devils, nor angels. Nothing, Paul says. In all the world. All of hell can line up against you, but it cannot stop the transformation work that God has is doing in your life. All of hell can be arrayed against you, but it will never ever interfere with God's favor upon you. All of hell can be arrayed against you, but it can never prevent you receiving every spiritual blessing in Christ. All of hell may be arrayed against you, but it can never prevent you from being acquitted, justified, justified, Because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And all of hell can array itself against you and put up all the bulwarks and barricades that all of hell can throw at you. But nothing will be able to separate you. He can never make something high enough. Never make something deep enough. Never make something wide enough that will separate you from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus. the final thing for me... Is that there must be a God who loves and understands me and my situation. The kind of God who's over all things. I think it's important that that he understands what it is to be touched with pain. quite an amazing thing you know that Daniel was told in Daniel chapter 9 500 or so years before that there would be Messiah and it's described in 9 chapter 26 or chapter 9 verse 26 it says there after the 62 sevens the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing there's an old Jewish proverb you know that that went this way, because they don't they don't believe Messiah has showed up yet, you know. And their old proverb says, where there is Messiah, there is no suffering. Nothing could be further from the truth. The word cut off here is for sacrifice. Says in the prophecy here that Messiah will be sacrificed, like an animal, and will have nothing rejected by those who should have loved him. I think Yancey has it right in his book when he says, "Where misery is, there is Messiah." In Romans 8:32 it says he meaning God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us how will he not also along with him give graciously give us all things our father in heaven who is a sovereign god over all the universe has been touched with the hardest of all pain the unjust sacrifice of his own son. He knows your pain. He understands your pain. One of the books written just before this last book of Yancey was called, Where is God When It Hurts? And in a summary, someone asked him, I don't feel like reading the book, but I'd like to know what the upshot is. You know, an author always loves to hear that. I don't want to read your book. I don't really want to buy your book. But you just tell me in one quick sentence what it's all about? <laughs> so he says, I'll answer the question, where is God when it hurts? Where God's people are. That's where God is. Let me ask you a question. Who rushes in when everybody else rushes away from you because they don't know what to say. Isn't it your brothers and sisters in Christ? Isn't it your church? Isn't that in, in the tragedies that we have watched in the stateside or in Canada? Who, who is it that shows up? Who is it that shows up to help the, 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 those in, in earthquake-ravaged places? Tragedy from earthquake and tornado. Who, who is it who shows up? church where is god when it hurts he shows up let me read you in closing in case you've forgotten in second corinthians chapter 1 paul says this praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of compassion and the god of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, you're not going to get a free pass, in other words. So also, through Christ, our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, It is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. The church answers the question, where is God? And by the way, many are tutored through pain to be proof of God to others in crisis. So can I suggest something to you? If you are in a reprieve time right now, maybe there's not a whole lot of pain or suffering in your life, make sure you cultivate a strong attachment to God's community in the good times so it will sustain you when all around you is coming apart. The church is a place where distress and comfort are freely and generously shared. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. In all of this, you know, God is producing a faith that matters in us. Until that day, when there is a shout from heaven of enough. The eschatological quotient of suffering and pain The taking of sin seriously is done. The final exclamation. Christ will return and set everything straight. We are reminded that this is a good creation that has fallen. That God is redeeming and will finally redeem. Jesus said that um, in this world there would be much trouble. I've told you these things, though. It wasn't the last word. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning as you've taken us on a journey of wrestling with the, the sovereign, dominant, Powerful control of our great God. Over against the evil and wickedness that seems to have its way. I thank you, Father, that standing through this is your honesty to us. You've never told us any lies. You've told us there will be trouble. It's a fallen world we live in. But that's not the last word. The word is from Jesus. I've told you this stuff. So that in me you'll know peace. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Father, I pray that your church will arise with this teaching and be strong in the midst of pain. Be an advertisement of the greatness of God in distress that your power and glory might be always in display in our lives, whether through distress or comfort. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know, I think we need to settle the question of how important is this teaching? How important are these things? Why in the world would Jesus stand before his disciples and say, in the world you are going to have much trouble? Because it was going to be true. That was going to be the way their lives were. And, and he said, I, I'm telling you this, not so you'll just simply know it's going to be tough out there. I'm telling you this so that in me, you will find peace. Take heart. I've overcome the world. I, I like probably many of you, have been fascinated with the Whitney Houston death and Circumstances around her death and all of that and I watched the whole funeral yesterday with the backdrop of this sermon in my mind and I was thinking you know here's a here's a here's a young woman who was raised in a Bible teaching Baptist church sung for the Lord in her early days in fact her first hit was a a wine and song you know talking about the Lord and it it said that uh You know, she had this tradition and foundation of faith. And trouble came into her life. And hard things. And she didn't find peace in Jesus. She chose other things. And the world swept over her. and She died way too early. Jesus said, listen... I am telling you this stuff so that when it comes you will turn to me for your peace. And you need to take heart. This will not sweep over you if you are in me because I have overcome the world. I think about what could have been for her. Where she is I hope she's with the Lord. But I'll tell you what, Jesus has told us what to do. In this world, you will have much trouble. I've told you this so that in me, you will find peace. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Our Father, would it be so of us That in the trials and tests of our lives, we won't turn other ways or to other things. But we will find our peace in you. We will find our answers in you. We will find our solace and our calm. We will find the answers to our questions. We will settle our hearts and our faith in you. Because you alone have overcome the power of wickedness for us. And you'll take us with you to victory. Oh God, please help us to embrace that with all of our hearts. For Christ's sake.